Thanks so much, Mana. Well, welcome to church. Love to add my welcome to Andrews. My name's Rowan, another one of the pastors here. And what a great series we're starting to come back to the beginning of beginnings. Uh, again, happy birthday to EV. So great uh, to come along and celebrate what God's been doing in us and amongst us. It really is a privilege, I think, to stand back and see the way God has worked. Um, it is about Him. So why don't we pray and ask Him now as we come to this part of His Word to help us understand it and to see it through His eyes. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word today, with all sorts of questions and all sorts of ideas in our minds, we ask that you would show us the foundation of the world that you have made, and you'd show us yourself, and that through your word and by your spirit, you'd shape us more and more into the likeness of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. On Christmas Eve, 1968, the world stopped to listen to a message of what three people saw with their own eyes. They saw with their own eyes something that had never been seen by any human in the history of humanity. Bill Anders, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman were the crew of Apollo 8. And they were the first people to see the dark side of the moon. As they orbited the moon for the first time ever, they telecast a message to the whole world that is said that one out of every four people alive on the planet at that time heard that live telecast. One in four. In 1968, the greatest minds of the time, those in the leading edge of the exploration science could afford us, chose to introduce what no one had ever seen before with the words of God, with this passage that we are looking at here. And over the next 10 weeks, we'll be looking at these first 12 chapters of of Genesis. No matter what you believe about God or the origins of the universe or how old the universe is or how it was made, this book is something that we need to grapple with for it claims to bring the view of the one who made it. It claims to bring the view on some of the most important questions in life. And when it comes to Genesis, you've got to admit there are lots of questions. There are lots of questions. And one of the things that we love here at EV is questions. We love being asked questions. We love grappling with the Bible together to see what it has to say and how we understand it. It's one of the reasons that we have these little connect cards each week. It's an opportunity for you to write down any any questions, as well as prayer points and other things we can be praying for you. It's also why the preacher generally hangs down the front here awkwardly every week, looking like they're a loner. It's for people to come up and ask us questions. We love that. We're trying to see a, a culture of that start up where if you've got questions, come and chat with us. We're available after each sermon to be able to talk with you in that area about whatever you've heard or whatever's going on. Questions are great because we want people to be thinking about what God's Word says and how it challenges our view of the world. If we're never being challenged, we're probably not listening to the Word of God because it's pretty rare that our view of the world lines up with His all the time. But sometimes questions can actually get in the way of our own understanding. They can get in the way of the way we understand the world and life, because sometimes when we ask the wrong question, we get in all sorts of trouble. Just ask anyone who's been involved in research. Um, We bring a heap of questions to things, and research isn't really about finding great answers. Research is about finding the right questions. Because if you assume the wrong thing in the question, then you're going to get the right answer to the wrong thing, and you'll never find out what you really need to find out. And when it comes to the book of Genesis, we bring a truckload of questions, but sometimes in our desire to answer what's blaring in front of our minds, we actually miss the questions God wants us to ask, the questions God's Word is raising. 
and we miss the answers to the things that really matter. So in order to hear what God has to say, we need to come to God's word on its own terms and work out what is it actually saying. Now, it doesn't mean we can't bring our own questions to it. We should and we ought, but we must not ever let our questions eclipse the questions God raises of us. So what is this book called Genesis? Well, Genesis is called the book of beginnings. The book of beginnings, if you're following in your notes. The word Genesis literally means the beginning. It's the beginning of what we know about God. It's the beginning of what we know about the universe. It's the beginning of what we know about us and humanity and what we know about salvation. It was written by Moses, we're told, and it's actually included in what Jesus would call the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. The other thing to note as we come to this book and think through what it's saying to us is its style. You see, as we open up, particularly the first two chapters, it's not some meandering narrative describing a blow-by-blow account of history. Genesis 1-11 is a highly structured account. The first two chapters are made up of an introduction of all that is. So chapters 1 and 2 look at the creation of the world and the creation of humanity. And then in chapters 3 to 11, we get five stories. And these stories have the same structure. You've got the fall, then Cain and Abel, the sons of God, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Each of these stories has this repeating pattern that goes on. There's rejection of God's order called sin. Then, there, then God speaks. Then God shows his generosity to his creation. And then God delivers a punishment. And each time a new story begins, it's almost like it's, it's a new beginning. We start again and we go, how will these people go? What will this be like? And we hear this repeated pattern as we try and try to get things right. As we come to the first two chapters, the creation account that we're looking at today, it's also highly structured. In fact, it's so highly structured that you can probably remember the structure that is in it. It's created around six days, is it not? Six days of what went on and what God creates in those days. And it's this pattern that God has without it the whole way through, right? God speaks, it happens, God sees that it's good, and then he gives it a name. And then he does it all again, and there's another day. And we, we see that repeated pattern that's there. Six times he repeats that pattern until we reach the seventh when he rests. But I want to show you this morning another pattern. As we think through what is Genesis saying, is it, is it written in six literal days or not? I want us to see what, how it's come to us and the way that it works. I'm going to give you an overview of the first six days and show you what God does. The table's on the screen. What we actually see is that in the first three days, God creates some form of form. So day one, he creates light, day and night. Day two, he creates water and sky, space, and it's there, separation. Day three, he creates land and vegetation. And then what he does on day four is he takes what he made on day one, And he gives it some sort of use. He fulfills it, you'll see. He creates the lights in heaven, the moon and the stars. So he takes the thing he made on day one and fulfills it and uses it in day four. He does the same thing with day two. He takes the water and the sky that he's made here, and then he fills the water with fish and the sky with birds. And then day three, he takes the land and the vegetation, and he fills it with animals and gives that land and vegetation use so that animals and and food and humans can be food for humans and for animals on the earth. So as you come to this, you actually see there's a highly poetic pattern that God sets out, that he makes something in the first three days, and then he gives it a use 
in the second lot of three days. Now, why do I tell you all that information? Like, cool, that's nice that he's done it that way. He could have, that just could have been the order, totally. But I want to point it out to you because I want you to see the highly structured and poetic nature of the first chapter of Genesis. Just as we read it, without any questions about Darwin or any questions about the age of the earth, that's how it comes to us, just like that. There's no doubt about that, that kind of creating and then filling. It's just there in front of us. So before we look at what Genesis 1 is claiming, I want us to see that what is before us is not a normal narrative account. It's repetition and form and structure all point to something a little more different than normal narrative, a little more poetic as you go through it. That's why the majority of publishers actually lay your Bible out in a different way for Genesis 1 than they do for Genesis 2 and following. They, they kind of show the day 1, day 2, day 3. And when they hit 2-5, they go back to this normal kind of full column text. Now that's not the Bible, it didn't come to us in that way. But it did come to us with the Hebrew and that's what the Hebrew shows. So the question for us as we enter into this book, as we start this beginning of beginnings today is, what is this poetic text saying? What is it saying? Just because something is poetic doesn't mean it's not true. Now understand that. I want to take you to an article I read in the Herald last month. This is the article. You can have a look at it on the screen. There you can see uh, a picture of someone jumping out of an aeroplane. And as I read the newspaper, I I take it that this was true. It looks like Jacinda Ardern. uh, And it looks like the aeroplane is called Politics. And there's a little speech bubble there. And what I heard on the 20th of January, 2023, was that Jacinda Ardern jumped out of an aeroplane called Politics that was being flown by Christopher Luxon. That actually happened. I I saw that in the newspaper. Now, as we look at that, we kind of go, no, Rowan, it's a cartoon, right? We can tell, like, speech bubbles don't exist. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Go around, you've not seen little bubbles come out of one another's mouths with what's going on there. But, you know, you could think that was what actually happened. But because you see that it's a cartoon, you go, ah, this is some statement that's being made. And in order to understand the author's intent of that cartoon, we need to recognize what type of communication it is. It's genre, they call it. But we also need to understand some of the background. You see, the day before, on the 19th, the Prime Minister announced that she was going to resign. The leader of of the opposition, Christopher Luxon, happened to be the CEO of Air New Zealand previously. And so the author is saying that politics is now going to be in the hands of the National Party. That's their kind of comment of what they're they're saying, perhaps. And that that little speech bubble that's saying, you know, I used to run an airline, that was me. It's probably also saying something satirical there as well. Just because he ran an airline, can he really run a country? We don't know. But we can see what happened when we understand the events of what's going on. And I want to say it's not too dissimilar when we read the Bible. We can see things in the text. We can see the poetic, structured nature of the passages. And we can see an account of creation that's here. What isn't immediately obvious to us is the worldview it was spoken into. So let me introduce to you the Babylonian background of the Genesis creation account, the Babylonian background. It's called the Enuma Elish. Here's some pictures of the tablets that have been found with it on it. It's the predominant worldview of the origins of the universe at the time Moses wrote Genesis. It's dated around somewhere between 2000 and 1000 BC. And it's an epic. It's a tale of how the world was created. This was the prevailing view of the world when Genesis was written. Let me explain what the Enuma Elish says. Firstly, there's Apsu, 
He's male, and that means seawater. And then there's Timat, who's female, which means freshwater. And these two are gods. As the epic continues, these gods give birth to another generation of gods. The young gods then come along. They throw a party. They make so much noise that they disturb the parent gods, Apsu and Timat. Apsu tries to destroy the troublesome gods he's created, but one of the young gods kills Apsu. Tim, Timat then plans revenge. The young gods then ask the god Marduk, which means solar calf, to lead them in battle. Marduk defe- de- um, defeats Timat's forces and kills Timat herself. As he kills her, he slices this this god, this parent god in some way, into two. Her carcass is, is sliced into two. One half then becomes the ground, the earth. The other half becomes the heavens or the sky. Marduk, according to the Enuma Elish, creates the world out of the carcass of Timat accidentally. And so then he's like, now what am I going to do? There's this world to look after and there's stuff and and so he gives the other gods responsibilities to look after the mess he made, to look after the world that he's in. But then all the other gods complain to Marduk that it's too much work. This kind of creation that happened by your accidental slicing of the mother god in this point in two is just too much for us. We don't, we don't want to do it. So Marduk goes, I've got an idea. Let's make humanity. And so he decides to make mankind from the blood of a dead God to relieve the other God's toil of having to look after the earth. That is what everyone believed. That's the Babylonian creation account as, as Moses speaks into the world at this point. It's the backdrop against which Genesis would have been first heard. For us today, we read Genesis with Darwin and the Big Bang Theory in our minds as the predominant worldview that we're kind of grappling with. And so we ask those questions. But Genesis is not written into that background. It's written into the world of the Enuma Elish. So what does Genesis then have to say against that background? How do we understand what God is saying to us with that as the kind of predominant worldview? Well, come with me to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was earth and sky and matter and light before even time itself, we're introduced to the creative God. God is the creative God. The creative God. See, the contrast here is not that there are many gods, but God. There are not many gods that were fighting in the heavens. In the beginning, God. Then, this God who is outside of time, for the first time, steps in and creates time. And so he begins a relationship with something and someone other than himself for the first time in all existence. In the beginning, God. The first thing to note about this book is it's not primarily about you and me. It's about God. It's a book primarily about him and his work and who he is and what he has done. Just listen to how often God is the subject of chapter 1. God created, God saw, God said, God called, God said, God made, God called, God said, God called, God saw, God said, God saw, God said, God made, God placed, God saw, God said, God created, God saw, God blessed, God said, God made, God saw, God said, God created, God blessed, God said, God saw, God blessed, God declared. Now I do that for a reason. It's not about me and you. It's about him. 
and who he is. So often we come to Genesis and treat it like a family photo. Look at how our family began. And what do you do when you come to a family photo? You look for yourself in it. There I am. <laughs> what God does is says, no, 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 no. It's, it's about me. Well, Genesis does give us a picture of the origins of the universe. It's not ultimately about that. It's about him. In the beginning, God. Notice, no proof is given, no evidence of provi- is provided because he understands that creation has enough of his fingerprints on it that no one can say you didn't make yourself known. The world around shows the reality of the fact that there is a God. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, writes this, For God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. In the beginning, God created. Now, that word there, create, means to form out of nothing. If you've done a bit of Latin, it's termed ex nihilo. And you might hear that phrase talking about God's creative effort was ex nihilo. It means out of nothing, nada, zip. It wasn't like God was kind of walking around and went to a friend's place, saw a party that had some little candles on the table. And God's like, I love that idea. That little Bernie candle thing. You know what we need to do? We need to take that Bernie candle thing, just make it heaps bigger, whack it in the sky and power the universe. We'll call it the sun. Let's go do that. No, no, there was nothing. And he just creates out of nothing. I think it's amazing. Um, I studied graphic design at university. I did three years of that, then worked as a designer throughout that time. And as a designer, one of my jobs was to create stuff for people. But I can tell you, nothing was ever totally new. You'd see something here and a little bit of something over there, and you'd bring them together and try something else, and off you'd go. But God goes, let there be light. And it was there. Exactly how he thought it would be, exactly how he wanted it to be, out of nothing. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. And what that means is creation, the things that he's made, has an absolute starting point. There was a point when it didn't exist. All that existed was God and Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he created. He spoke and creation came into being. And because of that, it means that creation itself, the making of you and me and the world we live in, is totally undeserved. Like, we don't deserve to live in this world. We didn't even exist. It's not like God went, oh, there's these people, now I've got to make something for them, or there's these gods that are going around, and we need to make it just a bit neater, and we don't want to look after the world, so we'll create people for that. No, no, God, before anything existed, went, I'm going to create this. This is a gift. It's called grace, undeserved blessing. God created us and the world, not because we deserved it, but because he chose to be good and generous. And because he created out of nothing, it means that before him, there was nothing other than himself. This is the claim of the Bible. This is God. Not just the Jewish God or the Hindu gods or even the Christian God. The claim of the Bible is that there is only one true and living God. He has has no other. There is no other peer to him. He says in Isaiah 44, 6, I am the Lord, there is no other. And that's why he's worthy of our worship. Because he created us when we didn't deserve it. Out of nothing. And he is the creator. That's why he's worthy of our praise and honor and glory. 
Listen to John in Revelation 4.11. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you've created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. The fact that God created means he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise, our service, our adoration, our thanks. Occasionally I get asked, you know, why, why is God so arrogant that he demands to be praised? You know, what, what does he strut around saying, you should praise me, you should listen to what I have to say? Who does he think he is? But when you look at what he has done, his creative effort of making you and me in this universe, it makes me wonder, how could we be so arrogant, so self-absorbed not to praise him? To think, ah, oh, why should he be praised? Look at what I've done with the things he's given me. The way we strut around and go, look at the world that we've created. How amazing when all we've done is taken some stuff here, some stuff there, put it together. And, you know, we've not created any new elements. Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> God is a God who creates. And because he creates, he is worthy of our worship. No matter what you think of him, he made you. But it's not just his creative effort that's on view as we come here. It's also his power. Think about that background of the Enuma Elish. It's the way that God does this with his word. Genesis 1 verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. He speaks, and creation comes into existence. God speaks, everything happens. Rowan speaks, nothing happens. <laughs> right? I find this in our family. I'm like, okay, guys, it's dinner time. And like our kids take ages to come. Sarah says it's dinner time. I don't come. Our words are so powerless, aren't they? Sure, sticks and stones may break our bones, you know, but words will never hurt us. We say that. They're not, there's some power there that affects us. But God speaks and it happens as he wants, as he plans, always, every time. Have you ever met anyone like that? That power who speaks reality into existence. Friends, the God who creates the world does it merely by his word. What blows me away about that is that the powerful God shows his power through his word, allows you and me to speak that same word. That word that brings life and creates. When we open our mouths and speak of God's love and forgiveness shown most clearly in the person of Jesus... God's power works through us. He allows us to take part in his work and we see parts of his creation become new creations. We see people move from death to life as they trust the news of who Jesus is. God makes a new creation through you and me when we share the news of who Jesus is and what he's done and people trust it with their lives. The same creative and powerful God who created the world in Genesis 1 through words actually speaks through your mouth and mine when we use and speak the gospel to one another. Doesn't that blow you away? We have here God's word, the news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension and what he has done and, and the way that we can be introduced to who God is and know him and be forgiven. And he's given it to us, that same word that saw the, the, the world be created. It's an amazing privilege. If nothing else, it wants me to to tell people about Jesus so they might be created afresh. 
But you know what's interesting? The only thing that, it seems, that seems to resist God in the whole of created order is you, me, and Satan. We'll see more detail in two weeks' time. But it, the sun kind of doesn't say to God at any point, I'm not going to come up today. The plants don't go, ah, oh, I, might, I might not grow. The water doesn't say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to go over there where you want me to go. But you and I so often put ourselves in the center of the picture and make the world about us. Why is it that we are the only part of created order that refuses to acknowledge God as he is? God, why will we not give him thanks? Philippians 2 tells us that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not that we're more powerful than God. He will make every knee bow and every tongue confess. That is the picture of the future when Jesus comes back. But God doesn't create us as robots. He makes us in a wonderful garden in relationship with him so we might enjoy him and his creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. In other words, the world around us is crying out, God made this, God is good, he is your maker. You see how crazy we are to ignore him? I want you to try this tonight. I want you to walk outside when it's dark. I want you to look up at the stars, hopefully, if, it's, if it's, there's no clouds around. But if there is, try another night. Just do this every night until there's no clouds. And I want you to look at the stars. And I want you to see what they are screaming. Do you know how fast light is? Light is so fast it can travel around the entire world seven and three quarter times in a second. That's quick, right? 300,000 kilometers per second. To give you an idea, that means to get from Earth to the moon takes just under two seconds. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, there. God's universe is so big that if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you 4.3 years to get to the nearest sun. If you could travel that quickly, you could go round the Earth seven and three quarter times a second, it would take you 4.3 years to get to the next solar system, the next star. If you wanted to cross the galaxy, just the one that we're in, the Milky Way, it will take you 100,000 years, traveling at 300,000 kilometers per second. As you look at the stars, you go, wow, God, you are big. Yet Isaiah 40 says, God hand, God's hands span the heavens. What would take us 100,000 years just to get across our galaxy, traveling at the speed of light, fits in the distance between God's thumb and his finger. The heavens declare the glory of God. The stars proclaim his handiwork. We have an amazing God who is so powerful, so good. Yet so many of us still have problems trusting him. And I think that's because we often miss the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Friends, God is good. In fact, he's the one who gives the definition of what good is. He's the one who creates. And at the end of each day, we get this phrase, and it was good. God saw it, and it was good. Verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, all of them end with God saying, and it was good. And then at 31, we get this. God saw all that he had made, 
and it was very good indeed. I wonder if you ever stopped to ask yourself, what does it mean for something to be good? Oh, that was a good day, had a good week. You know, this was a, a good house or a good job or a, this is a good person. What, what does it mean to be good? Where do we define goodness? In each instance here in Genesis 1, we see God speak, God create, and then God determine what goodness is. You see, goodness is defined as that which conforms to the will and word of God. Goodness is defined as that which conforms to the will and word of God. That is what good is. As God speaks creation into existence, he tells us this is good because he made it and it's how he says it should be. As humanity today are faced with the splendor of a flower, the intricacies of some wildlife or the sound of a babbling brook or the, the eyes of another human being, we almost universally say these things are good, don't we? Wow, look at that. How good is that? Why? What allows us to say it's good? It's because God has stitched into the fabric of every single one of his created beings the very definition of goodness, for it conforms to his will. And we're going to see as the story continues, as we walk away from what conforms to his word and will, goodness is disintegrated. Genesis gives us a framework to enjoy creation, to enjoy what God has made, to enjoy life, to enjoy relationships, because creation is good. It has purpose, God's purpose. If you remove God from the equation, this world is just an accident. If it's an accident, why should I care about the environment? Why should I love others? Why, why, is anything, why should I do anything? Or how can I say anything is good? If the world is an accident, there are no moral obligations to anyone. But if God has set the world up and said, this is good. If the world was made for a purpose, for a reason. Well, he then gives us purpose. But so often, we get the purpose of the world wrong as well. I want to do a thought experiment with you now. Don't, don't answer out loud. Maybe write, write the answer to this question on your page. If I were to ask you to write down, what is the high point of creation? What's your first response? Just think in your head. What is the high point, the magnum opus of God's creation? Maybe think, think, of, think of that thing, what it is. Most of us, naturally, myself included, as I think about the order of what happens throughout the days of creation, I get to the high point when God says it's very good. And what do I see at the center? Me. Us. Humanity. Right? We, we image God. We are God's image bearers on earth. There's something that's great about that. We're going to look next week more at what it means to be made in the image of God. But that is not the high point of creation. One of my biggest frustrations with people that say that the world was made in six literal days, that God created everything in six days, is it's a lie. It misses the seventh day. Have a look. Genesis 2, 2. On the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, set apart for him. For on it, he rested from all his work of creation. The pinnacle of creation is rest. It's for us to be in right relationship with the world God made, in right relationship with God and with one another. Do you see that? 
God made us for rest. For rest with him, in relationship with him. See, our existence in and of itself is not the end that we were made for. We were made for relationship with God. That is our purpose. To enjoy him and his creation, his way, in a way that is good. And his rest was designed to go on forever. Have you ever wondered, what what day is God in today? What, What day is it in God's scheme of days? I mean, is it day eight, day nine, day 700 billion? No, God is still in day seven. He's still in his day of rest. Yes, God works. Yes, God is active. But he is still in the seventh day. All throughout the Old Testament, we keep hearing of God calling people back to himself, back to his rest. Psalm 95, reflecting on people not trusting in his word, says this. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Listen to Hosea at the end of the New Testament, Hosea 2. On that day, he's promising what will happen in the future. I'll make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the creatures that crawl on the ground. I'm hearing some stuff here that sounds similar. I will shatter the bow, the sword, and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in the New Testament. Hebrews 4 verse 9. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest, God's rest, so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. God's rest was to go on forever. He didn't go back to work the next day. Great, I had my day of rest, now I'm going to go back to work. He's still in day seven. He's still in his rest. And the pinnacle of creation, of of how it was meant to be, was God with his people in his creation, in perfect relationship. And that's what it was. Well, it was in good relationship. But we're going to see in two weeks' time that we are no longer in his rest. We failed to conform to his will. We failed to do what is good. And so that search for satisfaction is a search for his rest, for right relationship with God and his world. About a year and a half ago, uh, Sarah and I had long service leave. We had 10 weeks off, which was a fantastic time of rest. And I remember um, finishing long service leave in Queenstown. Um, Sarah and two of our kids were flying back so they could get back for school. And I was driving with the other two of our kids all the way from Queenstown back to Auckland. And I remember packing up the house and driving out of Queenstown after spending uh, five weeks there. We'd done some skiing. It was great, great time together. Really refreshing time. I remember driving out of Queenstown... And as embarrassed as I am to say, I started crying. I'm like, what's going on with me? I'm like, why, why am, I, am I crying? Literally, there's tears coming down my eyes. Uh, I had a great break. It was, it was a fantastic time with our family. But in a sense, I didn't feel like a new person. I didn't feel like, whoa, man, I'm so ready to go back. No, I love church. I love Auckland. Um, I love Queenstown as well. But there was some part of me, as, as I kind of reflected, that felt like, I wanted more. I want more rest. I want more holidays. There was something so strong in me. And I'm, I'm thinking it over in my head, trying to kind of, you know, so the kids don't see me bawling as I'm driving because we've got a bit, a bit of a way to go. Uh, I'm trying to work out why am I responding in such a strong way? Then it hit me. 
Somewhere near Wanaka. I'm made for rest. The seventh day, God set up as a pattern of rest. That we might have that Sabbath day as a day of rest. He set it up not to keep some arbitrary seven-day routine that God wanted the rest of the world to be in forever. But to remind us of what we were made for. We were made for rest, for right relationship with God and his world. Without any brokenness and evil and pain, relationship with him that would last forever. Holidays, days off, long service leave, they're not a right for us to claim as if we should arrive at the end of those feeling totally rested and brilliant. And yes, I am now perfect like back in the Garden of Eden. No, because they won't deliver. They will never deliver this side of Jesus' returns. And that's the reminder we need. Once a week, every time we go on holidays, that our purpose, our goal, this side, our side of Genesis 3, is to enter God's rest. Here's a little implication for us from this passage. Don't put your hope in holidays. There's nothing wrong with having a break, and we should. There's a good pattern God has set up for us. But they'll never deliver. They're not what you were made for, not fully. Don't think that the trip to some place or the time away will really get you where you need to be. What you need is right relationship with God. And that's what he has promised in the person of Jesus. In Genesis 1, that rest was a reality and it was good. But it wasn't perfect. The garden wasn't perfect because they were still able to turn against God. But what God promises through his son, who comes much later in the plan, is that perfection. Where there's no more mourning or crying or tears, where our our rebellion against God has been dealt with, and we can know God himself, he can dwell in us, and in the twinkling of an eye when Jesus returns, we will be made like him. What Genesis 1 does is give us a picture of God of the reality that he has created the world for right rest and right relationship with himself. It gives us a picture that God defines what is good because he made us. And it gives us the goal of creation. Rest with him and his people forever. And our response, if we see him as he really is, surely can't be anything less than absolute praise for the God who speaks. The God who created this universe. Our response should be nothing less than just thankfulness and worship to live for him because he made you and he made me. Our response should be running to the solution we now see in Jesus and speaking that word to the world around that they might find rest in him. So when it comes to questions of God and science, old earth and young, I don't actually think Genesis is written to answer the detail of how God created. It's a a picture of the highway, not the graders that built it. The earth looks old. God could have done it in six literal days. He could have taken a long time period to be able to see that happen. But what we see here is what Galileo, the great astronomer, says. He says, The Bible is not concerned with telling us how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven. So when I read the Bible, I don't expect to get an answer to the age of the earth. Well, the explanation behind quantum theory, instead, I'm pointed to the God who made them. And I see he is good. He is gracious and loving. And my right response is to worship him in awe and wonder, for he and he alone is God. 
and we exist for him. Let's pray that we might fix our eyes on the God who made us and live for him because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, as we hear the beginning of beginnings, we are in awe that you are in control of all. We're in awe of your creative nature that you just speak and it happens. We're in awe of your power and your goodness. We confess that all too often we place ourselves in the center of our lives rather than you and we don't praise you as we ought. Please forgive us for our arrogance. Help us to see who you are and whose we are. And help us to live in your world, loving you, enjoying you your way. And let you define what good is, not us. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.